Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs and chapter number 21. We are marching through this wonderful book, hitting some of these wonderful Proverbs along the way and learning quite a bit about what God is doing. Remember the book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom for us, not just in world events, but for a practical life. With this, we find some also some Proverbs that helps us to understand the world around us. That around us, we seem like, is God really in charge? A lot of times we could take God out of our, the equation of our thinking and that we could see things and say it's falling apart. We look at things and say, why is bad things happening to them and good things happen to them? And it looks like a bunch of chaos. It looks like there's no rhyme or rhythm. But when you put God back in the equation, you understand that God is in charge. We know that in November time frame, that politics become ramped up as election day comes around the corner. We're not in a presidential election this year, it's next year, but it's already ramping up. We have state senators and representatives that are being elected. We have things that are going on. There are things on the ballot that people are worried about. And always after the election day, there are people all over throwing fits because they didn't get their way. How are things going to go up there? Why would this person be elected? How can God allow someone like this to be elected? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say as an answer for this. Look with me, if you don't mind, the book of Proverbs chapter 21. The book of Proverbs chapter 21, and if you don't mind, notice with me in verse number one. The book of Proverbs chapter 21 and in verse number one, the Bible says this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark that phrase that we find in the book of Proverbs chapter 21? Proverbs 21, and notice with me in verse number one, the king's heart is in the hand of of the Lord. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you, we're just asking that you would give us grace and that you would give us mercy, that you would help us, Lord, to keep our eyes upon you. It is so easy to get our eyes on something else, on peripheral things, on side things, and make them our focus, that we could get so aggravated with someone that we fail to look at you during this whole time. I'm asking that our hearts and our minds will be put upon you, that we could allow you to be God and allow you to do what you want to get accomplished. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Proverbs chapter 21, the Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Now, in order to help describe this, notice the illustration that is given afterwards. 
as the rivers of water, he turneth it whatsoever it will. Now this last phrase, as rivers of water, he turneth it whatever it will. This is a picture that comes from a proverb from the ancient world. Where an eastern farmer, what he could do is he could direct water in his irrigation canals simply by moving his foot to dam up the water. Now... <laughs> As boys, as little boys, we like to play with water. You know, you would go up to a little creek and maybe water's running down and every little boy likes to dam that up. Maybe they just put their foot there and they watch as the water kind of stacks up and then moves a different way. Or maybe they actually put things in front of it to divert it. Well, this is what it's talking about. That the waters, they're planning on going one direction and then what happens, an obstacle gets in the way and that water turns a whole different direction than when it was facing. And God is saying that he's able to have the heart of a king and because he has the heart of the king in his hand, that he's able to turn the heart, the desires, the impressions, the direction that the king was going and divert it to a different way. And it's just as easy to God as if he just put his finger in the way, put his foot in the way, put something in the way. It's easy for him to turn the heart of anyone to change the directions. God is in control of the affairs of man. And we find this in the history. We find this in the Bible as illustrations together that God is in control. We're not in a world that's falling apart. We're not in a world that's just going at a thousand miles an hour with no one driving the ship. God is in control. So with this, if you don't mind, let's go to a historical and biblical example of a man who was not saved, a man who was not a believer, a man who was not following the Bible, and yet he was in charge of the world, and God was able to direct his life and his heart for the sake of God's people. We're going to go and give an illustration of a man known as history as Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. Now, in order to get a good backdrop, the first thing I want to bring to you, if you don't mind, we're going to turn this to a history Bible class. And the first thing we need to bring to your attention for context sake is the ancient world empires. The ancient world empires. Any student of the Bible needs to have a working knowledge of the ancient world empires. These world empires give us the context of the Bible books which the empires are found. Remember, the Bible is not written in a bubble. It's not written where it's the things that happen in the Bible don't affect the world, nor does it is it in a bubble that the things of the world don't affect the Bible. The things of the world do affect the Bible. For example, as we're thinking as Christmas season is approaching us, why was it that Mary, who is nine months expected, traveling two countries out of her way? Because there was a tax upon all the land. And because of the world events, it caused her to leave her home of Nazareth to travel two different countries away to get to Bethlehem and why the whole thing was crowded. It wasn't because there was a Packer game going on. It was because everyone was forced to go back in order to be a census so they could be taxed. World events affected the Bible. 
So when we talk about the world empires, we need to have a working knowledge of this because all of the Bible is affected and influenced by the world empire that was in charge at that time. Now God had made prophecies of the world empires in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 8. These are specific ones where God prophesied these events and told them who was in charge. In fact, let me show you a small sampling in the book of Daniel chapter number 8. The book of Daniel chapter number 8, and if you want to lose your place in Proverbs, that's fine. We're going to turn to several passages. We'll eventually go there, but you don't have to keep a finger there, so you could use your fingers to do other things today. The book of uh, Daniel chapter 8, and again, we're going to show that God knew what he was doing. Daniel is written at a time where the Assyrians were a world empire. And God is giving Daniel a preview of what is going to happen down the road. And notice how specific this is going to be. Notice as God gives the interpretation of what he had just told Daniel. Notice with me in Daniel chapter 8 and verse number 19. Daniel chapter 8 And verse number 19, the Bible says this, And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be the last end of the indignation. For the time appointed, the end shall be. The ram, so what he's doing is referring to a prophecy he just gave earlier in the chapter. Now he's giving the interpretation. Notice he says this, Verse number 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. Pause. So here is a world empire that's going to come up on stage that is not currently a world empire. This is going to happen 200, 300 years from the time that Daniel is receiving this to the future. This is something that's going to be in the future. Notice at verse 20, uh, 21, And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, the king of Greece. Now, at this time of this writing, there is no true Greece. You have a bunch of city-states that are fighting against each other, and they could barely manage to survive on their own, much less be a world empire. So God is telling about these events of things that if you talk to the people this time, hey, one day Greece is going to take over the world. They're going to look at you and go, what? Who are they? It was something that wasn't even in the radar yet. And God knew these things. And he was so so specific, he gave the names of the countries of the world empires before they came to existence. And he goes on and explained what happened. In fact, uh, verse 21, And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, which is going to be Alexander the Great. Verse 22, And now when that being broken, the empire of Greece, whereas four stood up for it, the four kingdoms that shall stand up out of the nation and not in his power. Alexander the Great died not leaving a will about who was to take over the empire, so the empire was divided between his four generals. That was something that happened in 320 BC. This is written in Daniel in about 500 something BC. So he's giving events that are happening 200 years in advance. I meant who could call specifically, hey, the first king of Grecia, who is not even a thing now, is going to come up and then he's going to die and the four generals are going to take charge. That is very specific. 
God knows what's happening. So again, God gives the layout. We can look in our history, but we see that there are four are world empires that affect the Bible. The world empires that affect the Bible, the world empires you need to know, first of all, is Assyria. Assyria. Assyria were the Nazis of the ancient world. Everything that the Nazis did in Germany, the Assyrians did it first. They were nasty, evil people. And they affected the world. They're the ones who destroyed the northern kingdom of Samaria in 722 BC. They were evil people. After that, you had the world empire of Babylon. Babylon came up to the world stage led by Nebuchadnezzar. It was Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon that destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, Judah in 586 BC. In fact, Daniel, when he is writing, he is a prisoner at Babylon. He was kidnapped as a teenager, brought to Babylon, trained to teach Babylon. They gave him a different name than he was born with. And now he's at Babylon writing. After Babylon is going to come the Persians, the Persian empire. As we had saw in Daniel chapter eight, the Persians are going to come to power. After the Persians are going to be the Greeks. Now the Greeks are not going to have a direct bearing upon the Bible world as it's written, but the Greeks are going to be the ones in charge in what we call the intertestamental period, meaning the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's going to be the Greeks who are going to be in charge. So you have the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then after that, you're going to have the Roman Empire, which all throughout the New Testament, Rome is very much a big force. And that it is very much the context of everything that is done, whether it was in Jesus' day dealing with the uh, Pharisees and the people who hated Rome, to dealing with Paul in his missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire. Rome is the big context. So these are the biblical world empires that every Bible student needs to know. And that you need to know which book of the Bible, when you read the book of the Bible, which empire is in charge. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Now at the time of the writing of Isaiah, where we're going to turn to, Assyrians are the world empire. Turn with me if you don't mind now to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 44. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah's writing, Isaiah lives during the time of the Assyrian empire. The Assyrian empire. So at the time of Isaiah's writings, Babylon is a city that's within the Assyrian empire. It's not an empire of itself. It's a holy city found in Assyria. The Persians are barely functioning. They're, they're starting to gather strength, but they're not a world empire. They're just their own country that is dominated by Assyria and its influence. The Greeks are city-states right now. Uh, you have at this time, uh, if I remember correctly, Athens and Sparta fighting each other. So Greeks not united, they're divided. They've all fought each other in what is called the Peloponnesian Wars. Then you have Rome, who is in no one's radar. That right now it is 
The Romans aren't even in charge of it. You have the people called the Etruscans, which uh, we come from our, we get our word for horse riders, the Etruscans. I just forgot the word for it. They're the ones in charge of Rome. Rome's not even in charge of Rome. And yet you have Isaiah that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God directing him is telling him about future events. And he gives a specific event of things that are in the future. Notice if you don't mind, um, some of the things that haven't occurred yet, but God says is going to occur. Notice with me, Isaiah 44 and verse 26. Isaiah 44 and verse 26. That confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, thou shalt be built and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. So when Isaiah is writing this, he is writing in Jerusalem. So Isaiah chapter 44, verse 26, Isaiah is writing in Jerusalem. And yet this prophecy says that Jerusalem's going to have to be rebuilt. So this is an event that's going to occur later that God is speaking about. Now I'm just laying a foundation. You guys are listening well. I know it's a history class and you say it's supposed to be Sunday morning. I know, but we're building up a thing for your encouragement. Stay with me. That <laughs> the, what's going to happen in the future, the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. This is a future event that's going to cop, talk about two empires from where the uh, where Isaiah is currently at. Isaiah is living in the Assyrians. Then they're going to come the Babylonians. And then the prophecy he's dealing with is going to be the Persians. So he's talking about two world empires in the future. Notice as it goes on, something else that needs to be fixed. Verse 28, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shall be built and to the temple thou foundation shall be laid. Now again, as Isaiah's writing this, he could look out his window and Solomon's temple's still outside. But this prophecy is talking about a time where that temple is going to be destroyed and it's going to need to be rebuilt. So something that's going to happen in the future that currently hasn't happened yet when Isaiah is writing this. What's going to happen is that the Babylonians are going to come in 586 BC, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. For 70 years, the Babylonians are going to take the Hebrew people and bring them to the Babylonian empire in what we call the Babylonian captivity. But God is not going to leave those people there. He's already has a plan of how to bring them back. With this, we are now introduced to the main person of this prophecy, Cyrus, the anointed shepherd. Cyrus, the anointed shepherd. Notice in verse number 28, notice what God calls Cyrus. Thus, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. God is speaking here and he is calling a man by the name of Cyrus, God's shepherd. In chapter 45 and verse 1, notice what God calls Cyrus, that saith to his anointed to Cyrus. In chapter 45 verse 1, God calls Cyrus his anointed or his chosen one. Cyrus is one of three people in the Bible that was predicted to be born by name 
before they were even conceived. Think about this. Cyrus is one of the people that God said, called him by name before he was even a twinkle in his dad's eye. And God said, this is all that Cyrus is going to do. That's pretty amazing. Especially seeing that Cyrus was never a Christian. He was never a Hebrew, never a believer, never trusted God, and never read the Bible. And God said, he's my servant and he's my anointed. He's my chosen one. Now we're tying this into where we read in Proverbs that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. That here is a foreign heathen king that God is going to use to direct world events for the purpose of God's people. That's pretty amazing. Let's see some more about Cyrus in this passage. So God had raised Cyrus up to be in a position of power that he held. It was God that raised him up. In fact, there's an old story of Cyrus that when he was born, the king of Media was afraid he was going to be a threat to him. So according to the soothsayers of the, the Median Persian Empire, our country, that Cyrus was going to raise up, replace the king, and he was going to do some great things. So the king ordered for Cyrus to die. He said, let's kill the kid. So he gave it to one of his trusted servants. You go make sure this kid is taken care of. The trusted servant takes the kid, says, I don't want to kill a kid. So what he did is he gave it to like his cousin who lived out in the farmland, said, let him just go raise up a farmer. No one will ever know. No one will ever see. Well... It happened to be that it did. And so as the king is driving one day, years later, drives by, sees Cyrus out there and recognizes him immediately. I know who that is. Brings him back into the palace. He also does some horrible things with the servant who uh, uh, will we'll give that, if you want more details on that story later, come see me. But it, here it's showing that here's a Cyrus. He was supposed to die as a kid, and yet he still had God's providence upon him that he was spared because God had plans for him. Amen. That God is able to direct the heart and direct the path of even foreign heathen kings who don't trust the Bible. That God is able to direct their lives. You don't have to be saved for God to direct your life. You just have to be alive for God to direct your life. Amen. God is in control. God is not just the king of believers. He is the king of all people. So Cyrus eventually becomes the king of the Median Persian Empire. The Babylonian Empire was still at the strongest. Cyrus knows that he has to take down the Babylonian Empire. But how do I do this? This is an empire that has stood the test of time. And the city of Babylon is undefeatable. So Cyrus begins to take over the kingdoms around Babylon, but Babylon says, we're not worried about you. We could outlast you. You see, the strength of Babylon was its walls. The walls of Babylon were so big, they were reported to be about 60 feet high. That's pretty tall. And they were said that they were so wide that you could take four, four horse strong carriages and ride them side by side. For those math whizzes, how many horses can you ride side by side? Four times four is 16. How wide does it have to be? That's a wall that where you have 16 horses that could be side by side on the top of the wall going around it. That's a thick wall. In addition, the city of Babylon was huge. It was able to be at a place where they had their own gardens. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar had built one of the ancient wonders of the world called the Hanging Gardens. It was a terraced uh, 
kind of pyramid type thing that on each platform, it had greenery and shrubbery. It had streams that were running through it. It was a beautiful, lush garden. Babylon had also prepared for this eventuality that they had enough provisions and water stacked up for 20 years. In addition, they also had the Tigris River that was able to flow through the, um, the city that would able to get, continue to give it water, to continue to give it fish. By the way, the Tigris River is one of the largest rivers in the world and it ran right through the middle of town. So forget what everybody else could do if they want to see just by the way that's how people won wars back then is that they would camp around the city and they wouldn't allow deliveries in. So no more Walmart trucks, no more gas trucks, no more McDonald's trucks. Nothing could get in and nothing could get out. So whatever you had in the city, it's what you had to survive in. Normally people would surround a city and they would starve them out. Well, Babylon says, go ahead and try. We could last here for 20 years. How long can you stay out there? And so they weren't worried about Cyrus at all. Cyrus knew that he wasn't going to be able to directly attack the city. So he had to come up with another plan. He says, well, there's this river that runs through it. Now the Tigris River, by the time it hit Babylon, was as tall as two men stick together. So if you took two of me, the river would still be over that person's head. That's a pretty deep river. And so you weren't going to be able to get in that river and just take it. They had to do something with the river. So what Cyrus and his men did is they went upstream and they built all these little tributary irrigation ditches. And at the same time, they lifted up the dams that they had built and the water rushed to all these tributaries and the river ran out. Sounds almost like a verse that we just read that you were able to just divert the river, like the rivers of water, just to divert it. That's exactly what Cyrus did. And so the Tigris River immediately drained it down. So now you could walk across it. Now there's some other things that are happening at the same time. By the way, let me show you as we're in Isaiah 44. This is a bit that happens 200 years before, from the time of Isaiah before it happened. And notice how specific God is. Notice if you don't mind in verse 27, Isaiah 44 verse 27. It says, that saith to the deep, be dry and I will dry up the rivers. God knew that Cyrus, now it's one thing to name a person. It's a different thing to put an event. It's another thing to say both the name and the person of an event that's going to happen 200 years in advance. Notice in verse number 40, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. That saith to the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of the kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, what this is speaking about in prophecy is that these two-leaved gates are the gates of the Tigris River. They had these huge gates to allow the river to go through, but people couldn't go through. That debris couldn't go through. It would allow the water, but nothing else. Well, when the river went down, the people who were supposed to be guarding those gates said, you know what? Nope. And they opened them up. It allowed Cyrus and his men to go through. They got all muddy and they got out of the river went to the city, and now that they're all muddy, they all acted like they were drunk and loud and belligerent, and they all wandered up to the palace. Nobody said anything to them. They walked to the palace and just took 
took it. Now that they took the palace, they sent people to open the doors. They took Babylon overnight without pretty much firing a shot. God was able to take this massive city known for its pride that it can never be defeated. And God spoke about it 200 years before the event happened. God knew what he was doing. So what else do we learn more about this? Well, notice if you don't mind, as we study a little bit more and learn about this, that God gives this prophecy and he speaks about this. Now notice if you don't mind in chapter 45, verse one, there's another prophecy that goes along with this event. Notice with me, chapter 45, verse one, that saith to the Lord, to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of Kings. Here's another specific prophecy. In this prophecy, to loose the loins of your king, of kings means that this king, whatever king this was, was not Cyrus, wet his pants because he was so scared that same night. Do you know that this is actually referred to in the book of Daniel? Turn with me to the book of Daniel and let's see what happens in history. So Isaiah is prophecy. Daniel is history of this event. Notice what happens in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel... And notice with me, if you don't mind, <coughs> Daniel chapter number five, Daniel chapter five. So Isaiah was, pro was prophecy. Daniel is history. Let's see what happens. Daniel chapter number five. And notice with me, if you don't mind, starting at verse one. And Bethshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. And Bethshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded the, to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. So what happened is that this king decides he's going to have this big drunken party. And what he does, he says, hey, wait, wait, there's good uh, for, uh, cups and furniture and stuff that my dad stole from some backwater place. I think it was called Jerusalem. It was in their temple. Let's take that. So here are these vessels that were dedicated to God for God's use, and they brought them out for this party. And as they're having this party and they're celebrating, God puts a stop to it. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number five, chapter five, verse five. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him. And so the joints of his loins were loosened and his knees smote one against another. Here, God is so specific in prophecies. He predicted a king was going to wet his pants 200 years before it happened. That's a pretty specific prophecy, isn't it? This king's knees are shaking. He wets his pants looking at this disembodied hand writing on the wall. And he's like, oh... So they finally said, we need to go figure out how to answer this. Someone said, hey, there's this guy named Daniel. Daniel loved to tell people about prophecies and stuff. Let's bring him in. So they bring Daniel in and Daniel begins to tell him of his prophecies and begin to explain what's going on. Notice with me in chapter 5 and verse 23. Chapter 5, verse 23, Daniel begins to explain the prophecy. Notice in chapter 5, verse 23. But his 
has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and thou brought the vessels of this house before thee, and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold and brass and iron and wood and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose all thy ways thou hast not glorified. Notice what Daniel said to the king. He said, King, the God who holds thy breath, the God who holds all thy ways has not been glorified. God is, Daniel is telling the king, the empire of the world at this specific time, that God has your heart in his hands. He holds your breath in his hands. He controls your ways. That God has the heart of the king in, the hand, in his hands and he could turn it whichever way he wins. He says, you haven't glorified it. God, and he goes on to explain that, guess what? Tonight, you're done. God's going to kill you. Now, imagine being told you're the king of an empire and that tonight you're going to be destroyed and you're in the undefeatable city. You're in a city that no one can defeat. You don't know that the river is currently being dammed up and is going to dry up in just a couple of moments. They're having a big party. And so while they're having this big party, his knees are shaking, his pants are wetting, the river dries up. Cyrus and his men come over, they drunkenly get to the palace, gets to the palace, and as the king is told that he's going to be killed that night, here Cyrus comes in, kills the king, takes over the empire, just as God had said and said was going to happen. Now, it's my personal opinion that Daniel was waiting for Cyrus and said, hey, guess what? We've been waiting for you. Can I show you where? Wouldn't that be pretty amazing to have Cyrus the Great come and say, I'm here to take over and Daniel say, you want to see where your name was predicted 200 years ago? And for Cyrus to say, hey, I just did that. I just dried up the river. You, you sure you just didn't write this down? Is the ink still wet? This is a 200 year old piece of paper. And it said that all this was to happen, that would be pretty amazing. It would be. It's kind of interesting that verse number 29, chapter Daniel 5, 29, then commanded Bethshazzar and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made him a proclamation concerning him that he, Daniel, should be the third ruler of the kingdom. Why not the second ruler? Why not be second in charge? Why the third ruler? Well, interesting enough that the first ruler was called Nabonius. He was technically in charge right now. Bethshazzar was second in command. That means the first position open would be the third ruler. Now, Nabonius did not worship the god Marduk. The Babylonian god was called Marduk, and all the Babylonians wanted to worship him, the priest who was in charge. Nabonius, instead, wanted to worship another god called Sin. This is uh, known as a crescent, uh, pictured as a crescent moon. That god is still in present tense today, known as Allah. And Nabonius said, well, since nobody likes me, I'm going to go out to the desert. And he ignored Babylon and allowed his son to kind of rule and run things down to the ground. It said of Nabonius' own writings that he hadn't been in, in uh, Babylon for 10 years. 
because nobody liked him. Let, he was just out in the desert, just studying things, worshiping Allah out in the desert. Well, guess who happened to be in town that night? Nabonius. And Cyrus was able to capture him without firing a shot. They took him captive. So now he has the king and the, of Babylon and the second king's been killed. Daniel's here with a prophecy saying, hey, we've been waiting for you. Here's where you're at. And by the way, let's, let me tell you, the king wet his pants and this is what was predicted here. That's pretty amazing. So what happened next? Well, what happened next is that Cyrus made a declaration to the Hebrew people. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Ezra. I know that this isn't so much a Bible message as it much as it is a history lesson, but isn't it interesting history that God knows what he's doing and this is all tied together? Ezra chapter 1. So remember the context that the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, are in captivity in Babylon. Cyrus, who is God's anointed, who God had risen up, has now taken over the Babylonian empire and it is now in charge of the world. And Daniel, who by the way, he knew Daniel, Daniel had meeting with him. He actually kept Daniel in charge, which is unheard of. Normally when one empire would take over another empire, they get rid of all the officials. Daniel was official in Babylon and he was also an official inside of Persia. Again, if I was Daniel, I'd show up with that, with that scroll too and show Cyrus and say, hey, I'm on your side. This is what the Bible said. You know, God rose you up. God says you're anointed. God says you're a shepherd. God says that you're in charge. You're in charge. And so Cyrus said, okay, you can keep your post. You could still be in charge. Good job. Which will go into other stuff of the life of Daniel. I can't wait to preach on the life and ministry of Daniel and put all that together. Wouldn't that be amazing? So going back to Ezra chapter 1. Notice what it says in Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we know who this guy is, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled. Here's another fulfillment of prophecy. God said that to Jeremiah, you're only going to be in captivity for 70 years. Now here's Cyrus fulfilling another prophecy. This time in Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. So this isn't just someone said so. There is written evidence of this. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So here is Cyrus, God's anointed. He's not saved. He's not a believer. He's run into Daniel that had a prophecy of him, but he's not a follower of God. But yet because of all of this, he says, listen, your God's real. So go back and build him up a temple and uh, here's some money to go do it. That's pretty amazing. God was able to do so much. All of this is prophecy and all of it fulfilled. All proving the point that the hand of the king is in the heart of God. 
One more thing I want to show you back in Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. Now, I don't know about you, but this gets me excited to see that we have a God who's real and a God who's able to work outside of our little bubble. Aren't you glad that God is not limited in working in people's lives who are only Christians? Amen. Amen. We can trust God even with our current president, that he could change the heart and move him around, that God could do it with the next president, that God could take his heart and move him around, that God could even control your boss, whether that's unbelievable or not. God could work with that. God is able to be in the hearts and change hearts, change lives, change directions. Notice the principle given in Isaiah chapter 45, and notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number three. Isaiah 45 and verse three, it says, and I will give thee the treasures of darkness. Now, this is the same context and passage of Cyrus the Great and what he is going to do. And God says, I'm going to give thee the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name am the God of Israel. God says, I'm going to do all of these things to prove that I'm God. What is he going to do? He's going to give us the secrets of the treasures of darkness. What is this? The principle of treasures of darkness states that the worst things that happen to us can turn to be the greatest things that happen to us if it draws us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Was it an awful thing for the people of Israel to get put in Babylonian bondage? Yes. But why did God do it? Because they kept worshiping other gods other than God. What happened when they got out of Babylonian captivity? The Jewish people became the most monotheistic people there is. They're saying, there's only one God. We don't worship any other God. There's only one God. Did God know what he was doing to fix them? Absolutely. God knows how to do things, to put things in our life, to put people in charge that we may not agree with, that we may not like, we may not think their plan is right. But God is still able to use those things to do things for us. Could God put someone as a president who hates Christians? Yes. Why? That way Christians might actually pray. Amen. Christians might actually depend upon God. Christians might actually try to trust God. Can God know what he's doing? Absolutely. If God kept putting people that agreed with us in, we would never trust God. We wouldn't have any reason to pray. God has to do things to help stir us up, to help us have the spiritual weight. We can trust God that as long as we're looking past the circumstances and see the God of the circumstances, that God is in control. He's able to guide our path. He's able to guide others' path. He's able to guide the president, the king. He is able to guide it. The thing is, is will we trust God? Can we trust God? Will we trust God? How do we know we're trusting God? Is if we allow God to move in our path. As we were talking in Sunday school this morning, so many times we have a plan that's laid out for our life. It's a straight line from here to here and we know how we're going to get there, what steps. And then something gets in our way and we freak out. Because we're so prideful, we think that we know what we're doing. Remember, pride is the only source of or contention. When you get mad because you have a flat tire, it's because of pride. You're upset that God intervened with your path. Stupid thing. Can you allow God to work? 
Can you trust him enough to allow things to happen in your life? Can you allow him to put roadblocks to curve you around, to change your path? God is in control. God's in control whether you believe it or not. For our sakes, we have a better time enjoying the journey when we allow God to make the decisions he needs to make to get us to where he wants us to go. Not where we want to go, but where he wants us to go. Can we trust him? All of this going from passage to passage to passage, 12 pages of notes that I have, all to try to explain to you, God's in charge. God's in charge. Can you trust him? Now, we could easily bring it to politics. Well, God, I guess I'll just trust you for the next election. That's great and all, but what about your life tomorrow? Can you trust God to put hiccups in your schedule? Can you trust God to allow something to get into your path that you weren't expecting? If you could forgive the personal illustration, my wife just had emergency um, surgery to pull out her gallbladder. And we've been rejoicing to say God was good to allow this to happen. We've been watching all kinds of things that have happened because of that event. Different relationships, different things, people responding better. We could see the treasures of darkness. We, you know, any person could have said, oh, no emergency surgery. The sky's falling. We're all going to die. But we're able to look at the end of it and see God knew what he was doing the entire way. His way is perfect. Can you trust him? Maybe perhaps that you've had a hiccup this last week. You hit something that broadsided at you and you said, I wasn't expecting this. I didn't know how to deal with this. Well, now that you have this information, what can you do? You could say, God, I could trust you. You go up to him and trust him. Maybe you say, path is going well. Well, can you trust God if he hiccups you? Can you say, Lord, you're allowed to do with whatever you want with my schedule, with my path, whatever. You bring me to where you want me to go. I now surrender myself. You're allowed to do whatever you see fit because I trust you. The idea here is, can you faith God? Can you trust that he knows what he's doing? And can you give him control of your life and allow him to direct you the way that he sees fit, knowing that his way is perfect? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.